Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to this In Conversation, uh, in which I am delighted to be joined by Professor Mary Elise Sarotti, who is a, a very distinguished historian. Uh, she holds the Kravis Chair at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and her books include Not One Inch, America, Russia, and the Making of the Post-Cold War Stalemate, The Collapse, uh, The Accidental Opening of the Berlin Wall, and 1989, struggle to create post-Cold War Europe. And her books have been named Books of the Year by The Economist magazine and by The Financial Times. So we really couldn't be have anyone whose knowledge is more detailed or more topical. Um, I should also remind our audience that we have a, a, a question function and that uh, I'll be talking to uh, Professor Sarotti about the drivers uh, of this war and some of the perhaps non-term impacts we might expect uh, but we'll keep some time at the end to answer any questions uh, you may send in. So, um, Mary, if I may, uh, I want to start by asking about how we got here. Uh, President Putin and his government have persistently claimed that Russia uh, was guaranteed that NATO would not expand eastward. And this is a justification of some of the aggressive behaviours they've um, exhibited over the past years. Now, of course, expansion is a contestable way of putting it. NATO hasn't grown outwards by any by any outward push. It's it's bigger than it was because countries have wanted to join it. But nonetheless, is there any justification in this Russian argument? Yes. Uh, thank you, first, for inviting me to be here with you and with your audience. I appreciate that you are taking the time to pay attention to the important historical roots of this crisis. So it is a credit to you and your organization that you are looking to this important issue because the history is crucial here, uh, not just in a global sense, but in a personal sense. Uh, before I answer your question, let me just remind your listeners that Vladimir Putin was in East Germany in 1989 when it collapsed and has been paying attention ever since. So for him, this is not just uh, these are not just events within living history. These are events that are lived history, personally lived. You think about how many presidents and prime ministers have been since 1989, but Putin has just been there consistently. So this history weighs on him. And clearly, while he was isolated during the pandemic, he spent a great deal of time uh, developing even more uh, serious grievances and grudges about it. So, yes, at the um, one of the issues at play, there are many issues at play. I, I do not in any way want to deny the importance of Putin's um, claims that Ukrainians do not deserve their own nation or their own state. Those are obviously crucial as well. So there are a lot of factors at play. But one of the factors is NATO. And uh, President Putin is claiming NATO violated a promise not to move eastward and that the violation of that promise justifies brutalizing Ukrainians. Now, setting aside, of course, for a moment, the obvious point that it, even if it had happened, it did not would not justify his abhorrent actions in Ukraine. It's also not historically accurate. I've been researching this topic for decades. My interest in this topic originated, in fact, when I was studying abroad in West Berlin in 1989. And soon thereafter, I started earning my PhD in history at Yale. And I began researching this topic and I've never really stopped. You were kind enough to mention 
uh, three of my books, I, I didn't realize when I started working on them that I would be writing a trilogy, but it, there were so many questions, one leading to another, that I kept needing to write more books. Most recently, of course, Not One Inch, America, Russia, and the Making of Post-Cold War Stalemate. And that phrase, Not One Inch, that I've used for the title of my book, that's at the heart of the controversy. Uh, those words were uttered by the U.S. Secretary of State James Baker to the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. <clears throat> and Putin likes to cite those. He's been saying those at press conferences again and again, not one inch, not one inch, which, side note, makes my life surreal because every time that happens, I am inundated with uh, emails and texts, yeah. sometimes saying product placement alert. Uh, <laughs> so, so my life has been surreal since December uh, 2021. But um, he ignores Putin when he says that. He ignores what happened at the end. That statement, not one inch, was part of an early round of negotiations, which were hypothetical. The exact quotations and dates are in my book, Not One Inch. But roughly speaking, Secretary of State Jim Baker said to Mikhail Gorbachev, how about you let your half of Germany go so it can unify? And we agree that NATO will move not one inch eastward. And Gorbachev said, well, that sounds about right. But it didn't go farther than that. There was no accord or agreement. This was all happening in the context of Germany trying to unify. And Moscow is one of the victor powers of World War II still had troops and legal rights there and so had to be convinced to give those up to allow Germany to unify. So the question was how to do that. And Baker's initial gambit was, how about we say NATO will move not one inch eastward? The problem was that as soon as Baker went home to his boss, President George H.W. Bush, who was also his old friend and tennis doubles partner, uh, President Bush said to Baker, you know, Jim, you've leaned too far forward over your skis. That's not right. Uh, if we leave NATO where it is, if it moves not one inch beyond the Cold War front line, that means it'll forever be stuck in the middle of United Germany. That mm -hmm. means Germany will be half in and half out of NATO. That's absurd. Also, Gorbachev isn't asking for this. So I don't think we need to offer it. I'm president of the United States, and I think we should retain not only NATO, but also its ability to enlarge eastward. So Baker has to hurriedly send around a note. This is one of the new discoveries I found in researching this book to his friends and allies saying, forget I said that it's causing confusion. We're not going to do that anymore. Sorry. It takes Moscow a while to notice. And Gorbachev tries to get this written into the final treaty, but he can't. And this is the kicker. The final treaty, which Moscow signs, expressly allows NATO to extend Article 5 eastward across the former Cold War front line. And to repeat, Moscow signed that legally binding treaty. But Putin, of course, doesn't mention that. He instrumentalizes the hypothetical discussion from earlier in the talks because that's helpful for his purposes. Thank you. I think that, that's a really important fact for us all to understand uh, and how history is being used in this conflict to, to justify um, Russia's policy. Um, if I can uh, go back to one thing, something you mentioned in passing in what you said about uh, Putin and his view of, of Ukraine state. Um, I mean, what in your views are his main motives for, for the, this invasion? How much about, uh, of this is about a fear that a successful liberal democracy in Kiev could uh, inspire Russia's, uh, Russians to overthrow him in, in Moscow? And how much of this is because the reality is, is that he's a committed Russian revanchist nationalist? As a historian, as a history professor, I often tell my students that there's one phenomenon I've never observed in history, and that's 
monocausality. Mm-hmm. Important events always happen for a complicated mixture of reasons, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine is no exception. I think there's three main factors, and I think they are all significant to Putin. They might vary at times which one is more significant. The, uh, number one is, of course, as you said, uh, Putin's thinking about Ukraine uh, basically writ large. So his feeling that Ukrainians do not deserve a separate state or nation. Of course, the Ukrainians feel passionately the opposite way and are willing yes. to die for that belief. And I need to express a word of admiration for how bravely the Ukrainians are fighting. So Putin does not believe they deserve a state or nation. He believes they belong together. He also has um, a lot of regrets about the Soviet Union collapsing. Now, I hasten to add, I do not think that Putin is trying to put the Soviet back to get union back together again, like a puzzle. For starters, he's not trying to reinstate communism. He's personally far too wealthy for that. Uh, I also don't think that he is going to, say, try to take back Tajikistan. What I do think he has this idea of is some kind of the Slavic unity and that the Slavic Soviet republics, so Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, that somehow they all deserve to be under Moscow's control. And that, I think, is a big factor in what he's doing. So there's a certain degree of uh, revanchism for the collapse of the Soviet Union since Ukraine pulled out of it. But it's not going to go so far as his trying to just put this puzzle back together with all the pieces from before 1991. So this desire to, in some ways, create Slavic unity, he refers to Ruski Mir, the, the world of ethnic Russians, who he says are tragically scattered among these former Soviet republics. There's a whole complicated mixture of identity questions there. That's one factor. Another factor, as we talked about, is uh, his stated perception of NATO as a threat. Again, setting aside the fact that NATO does not have plans to invade Russia, or at least did not have any until uh, until he started brutalizing Ukraine. So there's a worry about NATO. And then there is a another historical grievance, which is his anger about the post-Cold War settlement as a whole. He feels that Russia is uh, basically marginalized by the way the post-Cold War settlement created a new line across Europe between countries that are in the EU and countries that are not, between countries that have Article 5 and countries that are not. And all of those leave Russia marginalized. For your listeners, by the way, Article 5 is the heart of the NATO treaty. It's the treaty that guarantees that once you're in, uh, all member states will treat an attack on one member state as an attack on all of them and respond accordingly. And obviously, Ukraine is not in NATO, but many of its neighbors are. So because of these three factors, his feelings about reassembling this world of Slavic unity or bringing all the, you know, Ruski Mir, his feelings about uh, NATO and his feelings about the way Russia got left on the margins of the post-Cold War security order. Those are, I think, the main factors driving what he is doing today. Thank you. And that last point you made is is really important because yep. uh, a fundamental uh, lack of acceptance of the Cold War, uh, yes. post-Cold War security arrangements means that it's very hard to see how there could be any lasting reconciliation between him and the democratic countries of Europe for whom that security settlement is fundamental, fundamental yes. to our existence. Yes. And that's actually one of the ways in which Ukraine is an anomaly because it's a large democracy, an imperfect democracy, but a democracy. And it got left on the outside of that line, the EU line, the Article 5 line. Uh, for Putin, as I said, these events are, are lived history. He was, as I mentioned, in East Germany in 1989 as a junior KGB officer. And relevant here is his reaction to what he saw in divided Germany in 1989 and 1990. In particular, he was horrified 
that Moscow refrained from using violence. He uh, has repeatedly said uh, that the Soviet Union should have fought to defend its position in Central and Eastern Europe. He personally threatened to shoot peaceful protesters who came to the KGB outpost in Dresden, where he was working. Putin also called Soviet troops stationed in East Germany and asked for backup, asked for armed help to, to kill protesters. And the person on the other end of the phone refused to do that. The person on the other end of the phone said, I will only do that with express authorization from Moscow and Moscow is silent. And Putin has said for many years, that phrase has haunted him. Moscow is silent, that it was a mistake, uh, that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And, you know, if you think about that, there is a lot of, of competition for that tragic title. But his answer is collapse of the Soviet Union. And so he, I guess, has decided that Moscow is not going to be silent anymore. And so understanding his personal anger at the way the post-Cold War emerged is, I think, very important. It's, in fact, why I published my book when I did. I've been working on this particular book, Not One Inch, uh, since about 2014, and I was trying to decide when to publish it. And as I started getting deeper into the research and understanding the magnitude of Putin's grievances about the West, again, setting aside whether they're justified. So I'm just describing his worldview. I thought, um, you know, he seems to want to push things on on significant dates, birthdays and anniversaries. And I saw the 30th anniversary of the Soviet Union on the horizon. And I thought, you know, I wonder if he'll push it around that date, because if, you know, that the anniversary of the greatest catastrophe of the century rolls around, you know, are you just going to let it roll by? And I thought, you know, I bet he's going to try to push it in some way. And I, you know, as a cold-blooded analyst, I, I feel gratified that my, you know, my analysis was correct. But as a warm-blooded human being, I'm, I'm truly horrified at the degree of violence that he's using to draw attention to these issues. Even I didn't think it would get this violent this quickly. And of course, let me repeat again and emphasize my admiration for the way the Ukrainians are resisting. Yes, I think I think what you said is really interesting um, for a couple of reasons. First is that I think some of the incomprehension, uh, the, the disbelief that we would go ahead with this invasion was a lack of comprehension that this is a man with very different values from us. That isn't to say that he's irrational. It means that um, he thinks that some things we think are deeply, deeply immoral are perfectly fine. Mm. Um, and, and as you mentioned, you mentioned his peculiar uh, approach for us uh, to anniversaries. Mm. Um, and as you see, you know, his approach has uh, to them should make one's blood run cold. Could you give us a couple of examples of the past of, of how that, uh, these anniversaries have, have been marked? Sure. So I, I should add one caveat. Much of what I'm telling you is based on research I've done, documents that I've gotten declassified. Uh, what I'm about to say is based on my uh, observation of what yes. has happened. It's not as if there's an archive on this, but it's clear yes. from a, 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 just not a from this publicly events, available anyway. Not one that's publicly available exactly. That Putin likes to mark birthdays and anniversaries in gruesome ways. So in particular, Putin really rose to prominence through his management of what's known as the Second Chechen War in 1999 and the the destruction of Grozny, which is now, I believe, considered to be the most destroyed city in Europe, although tragically, Mariupol will probably be competing for that title soon. That destruction happened on Putin's borders. 
in uh, 1999. And there were particularly violent fights there on October 7th, 1999, which is Putin's birthday. Then moving forward, there was a very brave journalist and human rights activist named Anna Polakovskaya, who kept going to Grozny and kept reporting on the human rights abuses there, on the war crimes, on Putin's brutality, and was a particular thorn in his side. And she was assassinated by a professional killer on October 7th, 2006, Putin's birthday. He gave a speech afterwards where he referred to her as an insignificant woman and basically all but said good riddance. Uh, then fast forward a decade to 2016 uh, in, the, in America, in my country, the uh, drop of the emails hacked from the account of John Podesta on the Hillary Clinton campaign happens on October 7th, 2016, and so forth. So if you start to look at this carefully, you begin to see that Putin apparently has either told his subordinates or they have somehow come to understand that he wants these kind of bloody tributes on his birthday. And then similarly, uh, important anniversaries also inspire him to take action. So the year 2016 was, of course, the 25th anniversary of Soviet collapse, and he hacked the U.S. election. And then my suspicion was for what is happening now, the 30th anniversary of Soviet collapse, which is also, of course, the 30th anniversary of Ukrainian independence. I, I guessed that he might push matters once again and act in gruesome ways once again. But what he's done has exceeded even my uh, worst dreams. I should add, by the way, that we even have an anniversary today. So today, March 24th, uh, 23 years ago in 1999, was when NATO action in Kosovo and Serbia began. And this is marked as an important day in Russia. There is uh, much propaganda circulated by uh, the Russian media because that date is seen as proof that NATO exists to bomb Slavs because that action happened without a UN Security Council resolution or UN approval. So even this date today is significant in Russia and the propaganda mills are grinding in Russia. And of course, uh, again, Putin instrumentalizes part of this history while ignoring the humanitarian crisis created by Slavoda Milosevic that led to the bombing on March 24th, 1999. Thank you. That's really enlightening on is an approach and, and, and viewpoint. Um, if I may try to sort of lure you into some lessons we might draw from, from the history you've studied that's led to where we are. Um, I mean, those in Europe were absorbed by what it means for Europe's future, for Ukraine's future, and, and the suffering there, and whether Ukraine will preserve its freedom. Um, but to, you know, to be frank, powers outside Europe are using this war as a teachable moment. For the US, this is partly about letting China know what might happen if it invaded Taiwan. And while one can hear from people in the Chinese system the argument that this is what happens where the US extends its security alliances to not too near another superpower's sphere of influence. But I mean, what do you think lessons we can draw on? on, on as you said, is Ukraine's like the existence bit of a security a gray zone. I mean, was the do you think it was a mistake in 2008 when NATO gave Ukraine an aspiration to a security guarantee, but without the reality of a security guarantee? Is there a perhaps a broader lesson we uh, policymakers might apply to other contested parts of the world that ambiguity can lead to trouble? That perhaps you know, making a, a seeming offer without really meaning it can lead to trouble, and that we need to be Hear a cut about what guarantees we actually offer. We lead people to believe that they're being offered, and in our own mind, what we are offering and what we're prepared mm. to stand by. Let me actually address 
two parts of what you've just said separately. Let me first talk a little bit about China and then talk about 2008, because I, I think those both are, are significant uh, comments and merit separate attention. So on China, I think China's role in this current crisis is significant. Mm-hmm. I It's clear, for example, that uh the Chinese did not want another one of their Olympics spoiled by a Russian invasion and Putin obliged them. So in 2008, Putin uh, caused a military, found an excuse to cause a military incursion in the state of Georgia on August 1st, 2008. And the Chinese Olympics started on August 8th, 2008. And the Chinese were not best pleased that the war in Georgia overshadowed those Olympics. So it seems <clears throat> clear from what's come out subsequently that the Chinese made clear to Putin that he should not spoil another Beijing Olympics with another invasion. So clearly, the Chinese have the ability to put pressure on Putin. And so far, as, as callers will know, they've, the Chinese Beijing has been taking a position of pro-Russian neutrality which at first glance seems to make sense because to put it bluntly, it makes it easier for China to exploit Russia. Uh, Russia is rich in natural resources. China is rich in people who know what to do with natural resources. So this at first blush looks like a good move for uh, China. And the more isolated Russia gets, the more of a junior partner it becomes, the easier it becomes for Beijing to exploit Russia. I would, however, since we're talking about historical lessons, uh, like to draw the um, attention of Chinese leaders, if any of them hear of, of my comments, to a different historical example, which is the beginning of the 20th century. Yes. At the beginning of that century, there was another power that was rising, that was clearly going to dominate the century, that had the um, that was developing cutting edge technology, that was growing military strength that had the finest laboratories in the world. And that country was, of course, Germany. And Germany, at the beginning of the 20th century, made a fateful choice. A crumbling empire on its border wanted to lash out at a smaller neighbor. And Berlin decided to support that crumbling empire, which was, of course, the Habsburg Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. That ended up dragging Berlin down into the abyss once that spiraled, spiraled out into world war. And so instead of dominating the 20th century, Germany ended up utterly destroyed and the United States came to dominate the 20th century. Does Beijing really want to make the same mistake now? It has a crumbling empire on its border. It's siding with that crumbling empire as it lashes out against a smaller country. It's basically tolerating violation of sovereignty and territorial integrity. It's uh, destroying stability. It's creating instability. And it is creating the potential that it may suffer the same fate as Wilhelmine Germany. So I hope if there are any uh, uh, m- any listeners who have contacts in Beijing, that they will pass along that historical message, because I think what is happening is not in Beijing's long term interest. And if Beijing could put pressure on Putin to uh, draw back or dial down his brutality, that's one of the few effective ways that we can help to end this conflict. So moving forward to the next part of your question about 2008, for your listeners, the reference there is to the NATO Bucharest summit in 2008. And it's important to note that the NATO Bucharest summit issued a statement, a a communique in writing stating Ukraine and Georgia will be members of NATO. This is something that even some member states have forgotten. This exists in writing as an intent. Now, that statement was, however, 
a compromise. And in fact, it was the worst of all possible worlds. The problem, as you rightly indicated, is that there was no real intent behind that to actually add Georgia and Ukraine. That statement was designed to kick the can down the road. The problem there was that the United States, under President George W. Bush, who personally attended, uh, very much wanted to add Georgia and Ukraine to NATO. But European states were concerned about the frictions with Russia that would cause. And so there was an enormous fight. It went down to the line at the summit. And the end result was this sorry compromise where NATO said Georgia and Ukraine will become members, but took absolutely no practical steps to make that happen. Because, of course, as perhaps many of your listeners know, I'm a NATO member. After that announcement, it immediately starts an individualized process of making sure that its um, you know, weapons, its systems and so forth can become interoperable with NATO, uh, giving a country a map, capital M, capital A, capital P, which is an individualized program to take steps to become NATO. Neither Ukraine nor Georgia received a map either then or now. So those were hollow words saying Georgia and Ukraine will become members and created unrealistic expectations. So I believe that was an unfortunate decision. Um, and uh, that was, I think you can ascribe that, ascribe that largely to President George W. Bush, who kept pushing when it was clear that there was not going to be the necessary unanimity to put Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. But he kept pushing and he got that statement. And then Putin, of course, took that statement at face value, uh, or he says he did. Um, he, he, he either believed it or he realized that it was useful, but either way, the consequence was the same. He immediately found an excuse for a military incursion in Georgia, as I mentioned before. And that was useful to him on multiple fronts, uh, among other things, that it basically canceled any chance of Georgia actually joining NATO, because the alliance is loath to take on a new member with a pre-existing conflict, especially one against the world's um, you know, the largest, you know, one of the world's largest nuclear powers. Because of the Article 5 agreement, if NATO took on a member with a pre-existing conflict, it would immediately take on a war. And so it's understandable that the alliance didn't want to do that. So it's it's very insightful of you. It's spot on to highlight 2008, because I think many of the issues of today go back to that date. Thank you. I think that's, um, uh, that does with a crucial moment. And I think uh, there are lessons for policymakers there about where not to end up and how not to end up there. Um, I mean, we have obviously today, uh, as you mentioned at the start, I think, uh, President Biden is in Brussels. We have these three summits going on there. Yes. Um, I mean, how do you think this crisis is going to shape uh, American views of NATO and its European allies' proper role and contribution in it? Well, if there is any uh, positive side to what is going on, it is, of course, the cohesion that it is creating in the West. Uh, it is tragic that. It took the bloodshed in Ukraine to reach this situation, but NATO is obviously united, as we see today in the summit. The European Union is united. There have been extraordinary measures. I, I don't need to tell your audience this in, in the past weeks, and they all trend in one direction, which is greater Western, Western unity. This is not surprising. Political theorists know that having a strong enemy concentrates the minds of an alliance. But it is a welcome development in the midst of this tragedy. Even countries such as Poland and Hungary, where democracy has been under threat, where there have been difficult relations with EU and NATO allies, those countries are now coming back into the fold. Uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary is dialing back his pro-Putin rhetoric. Uh, the polls have been extraordinarily welcoming to Ukrainian refugees. 
So I think there has been a lasting reinforcement of the transatlantic relationship. At one minor personal note, I was actually on the day of the invasion scheduled to speak at a conference in Berlin on European strategic autonomy. And the organizers of the conference canceled it with the justification that obviously Europe was not going to have any more strategic autonomy in the fight of a nu- in the threat, light of a nuclear threat. This is the organizer of the event. Yeah. So I thought that was rather remarkable. And they actually just emailed me yesterday. They've rescheduled the session and it now has a new title, which is Transatlantic Harmony. <laughs> so, you know, that's sort of, you know, just a minor personal anecdote, but it shows the significance of the shift that is happening. Um, what was one thing was interesting for me as a an observer who's been working on this in detail for a long time and who has been worried for a long time about what might happen was the level of shock in Europe that it actually came to war. I am deeply saddened by what has happened, but I am not shocked. I, mm-hmm. I had this awful sense of foreboding. That was one of the reasons, as I said, I published my book when I did. I am shocked at the extent to which Putin is uh, using violence to air his grievances, but I am not shocked that this has happened. When I interact with my European colleagues, I, I find there's almost a uniform sense of shock. There was sort of no one in Europe who believed that this might happen. I remember when I was doing my research, you know, sort of two years ago, you know, I would have colleagues in Europe saying, why are you working on NATO? And I said, because I think it's going to be important again. Mm-hmm. And they would say, oh, no, 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 no. You know, that's just the Americans. Americans are from Mars. We're from Venus. You always see there's going to be war with Russia. And we really know how to handle Russia. And, you know, it was it was. Um, there was a real disconnect between my research and what the expectations of my European colleagues were. And, yes. you know, I, I wish my European colleagues had been right uh, and that we were not where we were. But it seems now that Europeans and Americans, just speaking again from my personal sense, now we're on the same page in our expectations mm-hmm. towards Russia, which are tragic but realistic. Yeah. So I think one of the lessons we can draw already now is that uh, in parts of Europe, I think uh, those on in, in Central and Eastern Europe would say they should be excluded um, uh, from this, uh, that they'd be much more realistic uh, throughout, is a, is a disbelief, a failure to understand the reality of Putin's government of the man and of his values. Um, if I can, before we get to, to the audience's questions, if I could just ask you a, a last question, and actually very helpfully by the link of I mentioning um, European strategic autonomy. Uh, as you said, I mean, right now, we're enjoying this blooming of, of, of Western unity and transatlantic relationship, and indeed it's broad unity because countries like Japan and South Korea have also, um, uh, and Taiwan have been part of this effort. Um, but uh, it's kind of slightly rests on strong American leadership uh, and a consensus on this in American politics. And there haven't been many moments of consensus in American policy recently and a lot of people in Europe are very worried about the outcome of the next presidential election and that we might see a major break in this consensus. So it's obviously very early days and it's hard to reach an informed judgment about this. But how deeply rooted do you think uh, this consensus on Russian aggression is in American politics? How easily might it be, be changed? Do you think it will leave any lasting policy or political legacy? Well, again, tragically, just as the Russian brutality in Ukraine is leading to greater unity inside the transatlantic alliance, it is creating a sense of common mission here in the United States. Now, obviously, there are limits to that. Obviously, our our infamous TV host, Tucker Carlson, 
does not feel that shared mission. And a side note, I heard the other day, I, I don't know if this is accurate, but I, I, the person who told it to me is someone in a position to know. Apparently, Tucker Carlson is rebroadcast in Russia because he his comments are so favored there. Apparently, the Russian person who does the voiceover tries to mimic his, you know, spirited, shall we say, discussions when they dub it into Russian. So I find that that I find truly stomach turning. And there is that whole branch in America. But I do have the sense that this is one of the rare issues in these divided days that is creating, again, a sense of common mission. And that I suspect may be lasting. Again, it's tragic that it, it took the suffering of the Ukrainians to make this happen. But it is a welcome development to see agreement across the aisle on helping the Ukrainians. When Zelensky spoke to a joint session of Congress by Zoom, he received a standing ovation from, I think, just about everyone, which obviously hasn't happened recently. So it is contributing to a sense of mission, a sense of unity. I think some of that may result from muscle memory. Of course, yeah. uh, many senators you know, were sen- were, have memories of the Cold War and have memories of uh, the contest with the Soviet Union. And so in a sense that is almost reverting to form, particularly for uh, Republicans who are very you know, strongly anti-Soviet Union. So my hope is that, again, I, keep, I can't say this enough, that this tra- what is tragic may actually have some beneficial effects in both NATO and the European, U- European Union and inside the United States. Thank you. Well, uh, now let's turn to some questions from our audience. I remind our audience that if you haven't put a question in, uh, do please, and we will try to fit you in. But um, the first is from uh, from Neil Hardwick, which is about uh, how dangerous Putin's uh, involvement of Chechen militia is, um, and uh, what it um, what its broader consequences might be. Yeah, I um, I see that question and the question and answer from Neil Hardwick. It's, it's an insightful question. The uh, I now I don't you know as a history professor I don't have access to you know intelligence on the ground, so I I can't you know tell you about the active details. What I can say is that it is chilling to have any degree of Chechen involvement at all. As I mentioned before, Putin was the moving spirit, so to speak, behind the Second Chechen War of 1999, which was extraordinarily brutal. I I keep using that word, but I I don't know what else to call it. There is even speculation. Again, I, I don't have hard evidence on this, but there's speculation that Putin was involved in causing apartment bombings uh, in Russian cities that actually prompted the Second Chechen War. Uh, the David Satter has written a book about this, the journalist David Satter, saying that not only was Putin behind the Second Chechen War, but he was actually behind these apartment bombings in Russian cities that provoked the Second Chechen War because those bombings were blamed on Chechen terrorists. So this is, a you know again, a particularly gruesome example of Putin's methods. And I am afraid that, you know, what we are seeing in Mariupol is in many ways an echo of what he did in uh, Grozny. So I am concerned about really any parallels and involvement of Chechen fighters that obviously would be people under Kadyrov, but particularly thug-like subordinate of Putin's in Chechnya. So I believe that is a very, very worrisome development, but I, I don't have any inside information that I can, you know, reliably give to you other than what I read in the newspapers. Yes, thank you. I mean, it's, it reminds that, you know, brutality is a method. Um, uh, uh, next question. Um, uh, uh, one of our listeners asked why Putin makes so much of, 
of his claim about uh, Nazis, quotes Nazis' involvement in, in Ukraine, and what it's historic, whether it's simply propagandistic or whether it has historical significance. <clears throat> Again, uh, one of another another constant trend in Putin's behavior, in addition to brutality, is instrumentalizing history. This he does consistently throughout his life and to this day. And so the use of the word Nazis is meant to rally support at home in Russia. The memory of the Second World War looms very large among contemporary Russians. There are, you know, still regular events to mark World War II victories. If you go to downtown Moscow or indeed downtown any major city, you see monuments. This is part of the um, really part of the cultural awareness of Russians to a much greater degree than in the West. I, I'm always reminded of this on June 22nd every year, which is, of course, the anniversary of the Nazi invasion, Operation Barbarossa of the Soviet Union, which is you know a significant date in Russia, but not in the West. So uh, he likes to use these evocative historic phrases. And certainly the Soviet fight against the Nazis is the most evocative of all. So he is using that, even though it is obviously nonsensical to say that a country run by a man who is Jewish, who lost family members to the Holocaust is a Nazi. He's, he's not using that because it's accurate in any way. He's using that because of its mobilization potential for Russians at home. It's a kind of shorthand for we are the heroes. We are the good guys. They are the bad guys, right? It reduces everything to a very simple level. And uh, Putin also, as I said, <clears throat> has this, this belief, he refers to it as Ruski Mir, the Russian world. What he means by that are uh, ethnic Russians who ended up outside of Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed, which he sees as a horrible tragedy. Now, these are just people who were just living their lives in Ukraine, uh, many of them very happily. They were, you know, married, had kids. They didn't consider themselves to be uh, somehow, um, you know, abandoned or distressed. Uh, but Putin considers them to be such. Similarly, ethnic Russians living in the Baltics. And so uh, in his mind, again, I'm just describing his view. I'm not endorsing it. In yeah. his mind, these ethnic Russians are being treated horribly. They ended up outside of their, their, you know, Russia where they should be. And they're being treated horribly by Nazis in Ukraine or by leaders in the Baltics. And he needs to rescue them. These Ruski Mir, this Russian world, these ethnic Russians who somehow aren't in Russia. And his solution to that seems to be to turn more areas of the map into Russia so they can therefore be, you know, at home in Russia. Again, you know, I'm, I'm, again, not condoning this, just explaining his thinking. And so, uh, that means that we sets it up this way. It's kind of a simple narrative. There are these good Russians, just like you and me. They're under threat from Nazis, and I'm in a position. I'm in a position to do something about it, so I will. And this appears to be the narrative that you know is currently dominating in Russia. The sad thing is that propaganda works. It's kind of amazing how much. Um, rather, how little accurate information appears to be getting into Russia about yeah. what's going in the conflict, and so that narrative actually is as ridiculous as it seems to us has has tra seems to be having traction inside of Russia. So we ha have a, 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 a small flood of questions, which I will, uh, but I think we only have five minutes left, so I will try to turn them into quick fire questions. Uh, and if you'd be kind enough to give quick fire answers, answers yes. <clears throat> um, uh, is it sustainable for uh, NATO not uh, to intervene? Um, in uh, in NATO uh, in non-NATO countries, um, uh, you'll be giving a free pass to Russia to invade in Europe's neighbourhood as long as it isn't in NATO. Mm. Yeah, that that is the main question. The, 
The real challenge is to figure out how to help the Ukrainians, because we have to do this. This has to stop what is happening. The challenge is how to support the Ukrainians without escalating the conflict to a nuclear exchange. Now, that is a huge challenge. The good news is that we have decades of experience with that. It was called the Cold War. It's the period that I study. In fact, I believe that's one of the reasons I studied the Cold War is because I believe it's hugely important to figure out how we successfully stood our ground, defended Western values against the Soviet Union, and yet avoided a nuclear exchange and brought matters to peaceful resolution. I believe that was a remarkable accomplishment, and I'm spending my life studying it. And sadly, my expertise is now going from historical to practical. One of the reasons I'm talking to you today, because we need to figure out how to do that again. So um, I think there is, you know, we need to figure out everything we can do that doesn't risk escalation. So I mentioned, for example, put pressure on the Chinese. Another option might be to get neutrals involved. So perhaps, you know, the Indians uh, could be mobilized. Perhaps, you know, I'm spitballing here, but we need to do everything we can to, but not go into a direct NATO-Russia conflict. So can we, you know, declare a we-fly zone, not a no-fly zone, but a we-fly zone. We're going to fly in a humanitarian corridor and, you know, come get us if you want, but we're going to do that. Perhaps manned by neutrals. You know, what can we do? You know, what weapon yes. systems can we supply? So Yes. Thank you very much. Um, uh, next question. Uh, do you think Russia has the capacity to occupy large parts of Ukraine permanently? Uh, depends on what you mean by capacity. Mm-hmm. I, sus- I, would, I would say no, because it's a combination of capacity and will. Yeah. I suspect that Russia could obviously continue to hold Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, the ashes of Mariupol. So there may be an end state where Putin says, well, what I really wanted was a land bridge to Crimea. And now I've got that. And that I think Russia could hold. Holding all of Ukraine, I mean, Ukraine is a is a huge country, right? Yeah. The size of Texas, and it has it had they're now fleeing, but it had over forty million people. That's one big insurgency, right? And Putin has enough troops to you know ruin the country, but I don't think he has enough troops to rule the country. It would yeah. be a massive insurgency. So I think not would be my guess. Again, depends on what you mean by capacity, but I would say no. Thank you. Thank you very much. And one last question, uh, which is drawing on a historical perspective. How feasible is a coup in Moscow? I I wish it were more feasible than it probably is, although I was heartened to see that Chubias has left. That's a good first crack in the facade. Uh, the problem, of course, is that the only people who really could make a difference are the so-called Siloviki, the, the hard men, the security forces around him. And Putin is obviously being very careful with everyone. We've, of course, all seen the long table, which looks slightly ridiculous with, you know, people sitting 20 feet away or whatever it is. I suspect that may be not just out of fear of COVID, but also out of fear of assassination. So he's obviously being very, very careful. Uh, the, you know, the, opportunity for someone to get to him seems to be limited. That would, I think, in the context, be a good outcome. Now, I'm under no illusions that suddenly Russia would suddenly become a democracy and everything would be great. I I think that this would not be regime change. This would only be personnel change. But uh, that, I think, in the context would be a good outcome. Uh, The hope is that these people realize that Putin is turning Russia into North Korea roughly speaking. And they need to be asking themselves, do I want to spend the rest of my life in North Korea? And if the answer is no, then they should take some action. I think it is unlikely, but it 
it would be a good outcome. The problem is that the more threatened Putin feels, the more he's willing to react like a cornered wild animal. So the conundrum is that while, you know, I deeply hope there is a palace coup, I think it is unwise to call for it openly because it will make Putin more feel more threatened and more cornered. So that is a particularly delicate topic. You know, one of the things that you should hope for, but not talk about, I would say. Yes. Yes. Well, um, uh, uh, Mary, Professor Sorotti, thank you uh, very, very much for your time. It's been very generous. You are enormously in demand nowadays, uh, and it's fantastic to have you talking to us, uh, you know, since you literally wrote the book on all this. <laughs> um, I, I look forward to hearing what more you have to say as, as events go on. And um Thank you very much for your, indeed. Sure. Thank you for your time. Again, thank you for your attention, especially to the history of this issue. I think it is crucial. And I it is a sign of how smart you and your organization are that you're paying attention to this aspect of the issue. So thank you for inviting me and making time. Great pleasure. Sure. Goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com, and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. Thank you.